0: You may be seated. You at home, you may remain seated. And if you have your Bible handy, and I hope you do, if you would, please turn to Mark chapter 3. This is one of those topics which I didn't know how to title it, and you try cleverness, and that doesn't seem to come off well. <laughs> I've seen some other pastors try clever titles, but I just titled it with a question, what is blasphemy? Because that's what we're going to be looking at in this passage today. And there are a lot of questions surrounding that particular topic. So we're going to look at it today. I didn't get permission from our growth encounter leader to share his story, but ask him about it after church, those of you who are here. So I'm going to share one of my own stories today. But he gave a a little public confession about when he was younger, about something that he had done. He has gotten forgiveness for that, but... uh, It was a juicy story. I loved it. Really good. Uh, But when I was young, I remember the one thing that sticks, and I've shared this years ago with you, so it's probably going to sound familiar. But the reason I hang on to that is because it was indelible in the lesson I learned from it, because I was so traumatized by my feelings of guilt because of it. I lived about a quarter of a mile away from a gas station, good old-fashioned service station, and there was an old-fashioned pop machine right in front of that gas station the kind that usually took about 50 cents for a pop. That was back in that day, and my mom and dad would let me walk up to that place, but I also found that there was a school being built. It was one year away from being finished, and it would become the junior high school that I attended, the middle school, and we were wandering through the construction site and found all these little metal circles that had been knocked out by electricians where they were going to run cables into these boxes, and somebody said, you know, if you get a, metal file and file off the rough edges and file off that little nib where it came off. It's just exactly the same size as a quarter. And I thought, no, come on. They go, no, really, try it sometime. It works on a pot machine. So I thought, okay, is this wrong? I'm pretty sure it probably is, yeah. But I'm going to try it anyway. (laughs) because it just was so intriguing to me. And so I walked up and I had these things burning a hole in my pocket and I started getting sweaty palms and I started to feel nervous and I wrestled with myself all the way up to that pot machine and thought, am I gonna get caught if I do this? And is it wrong? And then I thought in myself, well, wait a minute. Somebody has to pay for this pop before it shows up in this machine. And if I pay for it without money, then that's the same as stealing, right? So I knew in my little mind, I knew that I was going to be stealing pop if I took that out of the machine using counterfeit money, these slugs. And I did it anyway. The fleshly nature overtook, oh, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was so weak. And I put those two little slugs in there, and the first one, I expected it to go all the way through and come out in that little change receptacle, you know, and, but it didn't. I heard the little machine go, and I went, oh, my goodness. The first one went through okay, and it registered up there, so I put the second one in. And sure enough, I heard the mechanism starting to work inside the machine, and that pop bottle went right down into the bottom so I could push the door open and pull it out. And I kept just sort of looking over my shoulder, expecting all the way home, drinking this pop, which tasted funny to me, expecting somebody to come running up and grab me by the shoulders. And, you know, and then I thought, maybe my fingerprints are on those slugs. Maybe there's going to be a knock at the door this evening and some guy in a blue suit with a tie from the FBI is going to show up. And my parents will say, son, you got some splaining to do. But nobody ever did. The thing was, though, that I lived with my guilty conscience for a long time because I had done that, and I knew, I knew it was wrong, and I did it anyway. And then when I started learning about forgiveness and the fact that it's by faith that we're saved, not through our works, and I realized, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm a thief. I stole. So I'm guilty, and I need to be forgiven for that. So it was a huge weight off my little shoulders when I found out that we could confess these sins And be rid of that guilt. Well, because of our sin-tainted state, there's something that all of us have a tendency to do, and that is to project our guilt onto other people. Started all the way back at the beginning. I didn't do it. He made me do it. She made me do it. You know, it's the old he said, she said. It's the blame game. And it wasn't my fault is something that crops up a lot in humankind because of our fleshly or sinful nature. And projection, when you think about it, when you project guilt on somebody else, it's the root of hypocrisy. Because you're willing to see all the faults in other people and you fail to see them in yourself. And even when you do see them in yourself, you're going to try to get a mirror and reflect that or project it onto somebody else, which means that you're not holding yourself to the same standard that you're holding everybody else to. That's being a hypocrite. So we quickly try to deflect it or minimize it and say, but there are... Tons of other people who are far worse than I am, and that's our sinful nature. So this tendency, as I mentioned, it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden, and it's been true in every human being since, and I think we all know it deep down. Now, we're about to see something that's a little bit of a strange thing because it's somewhat related to this projection idea, except that in this case, with Jesus and the teachers of the law, they were projecting something, but they were blaming somebody else as the motivation for Jesus, doing something good. And we think, how twisted is that? (laughs) He was actually being blamed of having the power of Beelzebel or Beelzebub, Satan, being possessed of a demon giving him the supernatural powers to do the ability of things like casting out demons in other people. Sounds twisted, doesn't it? there's good reason for that because it is it's nuts and jesus pointed out how nuts it is by just a common casual uh group of parables he was just having a conversation dissecting this thing with them in such a way that it becomes indelible in our lessons knowing that when we feel that weight of guilt we can be forgiven but only because of somebody like jesus now to be fair In Jesus' early ministry, these people had not seen anybody, no human being, do the things that they were witnessing a human being doing. Okay, so this is pretty unusual. I have to admit that. And even in his own immediate family, as we're going to see in this passage, they couldn't quite believe some of the things they were seeing. This is just my son, you know, or my brother or my half-brother. So we're going to look at the passage today, and then there are kind of two parts to that. We're going to look at Jesus' family and how they reacted to him. Then we're going to look at the teachers of the law, and we're going to wonder... At these great parables that Jesus tells them and we're going to get a good handle on this whole concept of blasphemy what is it exactly and what is the sin unto death the ultimate blasphemy the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and if anybody's asking have I committed it I've got an answer for you so stay tuned let's read the passage and it's mark 3 20 through 30 you can read along with me I'm reading from the NIV this time You'll know me if you've listened to any of my messages that I'll jump around from different translations if it gets as close as I think it can get to the actual meat of what's going on. But today, it's the NIV. And then, Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered. We saw that already in chapter 2, the guy that was let down through the roof because there were so many people gathered, they couldn't get uh, to Jesus. So again, this is happening so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. But he kept ministering. Verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. And the words there means to take hold of him, to physically remove him from the building. For they said, he's out of his mind. Okay. And then verse 22, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem which means these were the head honchos, the temple worship guys, the teachers of the law. It's like sending in your top-level management to check on this guy and see what's going on. The teachers of the law, he says, they said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan, he asked. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And you need to notice the word house. It's going to become very important as we unpack this. If Satan, this is verse uh, 26, and if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And then he wrapped it up, Mark does, in verse 30 of this section when he says... He said this because they, meaning the teachers of the law, were saying, he has an impure spirit. Let's pray for God to illuminate this section of Scripture for us. Father, it's easy to become perplexed as we look at things that are difficult to grasp at first glance. I pray specifically for your spirit to be the real teacher here, and whatever things I may have picked up from other really erudite teachers, I pray that I'll get out of the way and I'll merely be the spokesperson, but that it'll be your spirit really doing the teaching in our hearts today. And I pray that we'll grasp it and apply it so that we can understand more about what you meant and so that we can come uh, to a closer understanding of the depth of your rich mercy to us. And I thank you for what you're going to be showing us in these next few minutes. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at Jesus' responses to both of these groups of people. His family, first of all, immediate family, and then the Pharisees or teachers of the law. Jesus enters this house. Again, the crowd is gathered. They're clearly, the family's clearly starting to become concerned because they're starting to see and hear things, not only about Jesus, but when they get there, they're hearing him teach and watching what he's doing as well. And they're getting a little bit uh, wigged out. Let me take you to four words because we're going to see how we could approach all four of these words. I've shared this with you before. I'm sure that's not new to many of you. Uh, C.S. Lewis made very famous the first three, and then some other scholars tried to add the fourth as well. And they are liar, lunatic, lord, or legend. Those are four, and you have to pick one of those. That's pretty much all that you have available to you as you're going to try to determine who is this Jesus and how do I relate to him. So I'm fairly familiar with that. I'm sure that most of you are familiar with that. I think that it's really quick though that we can scratch off legend of that list. You can scratch it right out there. Any scholar who trusts history, including extra-biblical history. And I think that the Bible is a book of history and it's trustworthy because it's been corroborated. You can apply any standard, scholarly standards to it and find out that it's credible. But even if you were to put it to the side just for this sake, There are other historians who have talked about Jesus enough that any real scholar has to be intellectually honest in saying he's not a legend, he's not a character of fiction in some novel. This was a historic figure, and he actually existed on earth. So we've scratched off that fourth one, which is probably why C.S. Lewis just thought it's not even worth it. I'm going to leave it out of my three. So early in Jesus' ministry, where does Jesus' own family place him? In the lunatic column. Isn't that scary? To think that Jesus' own family is thinking, our son, his cheese has slid right off his cracker. He's a lunatic. He's gone bats. Something is not right. He's unbalanced. It would have been nice if they had said, Jesus, we love you, son. You're working too hard. You're hungry. You can't even eat. Come and put some meat on your bones. Come on, let's have some good soup here. I made some lentil soup and we've got some Oh, it's, it's going to be wonderful. They didn't say that. They were trying to lay hands on him. This is like an intervention on their part, and they're trying to say, he's lost his mind. That's how concerned they were about that. We have the luxury, however, of the whole story because we have the entire scripture available to us, and so we know something. James, Jesus' half-brother, was a part of this family, and he eventually concluded that Jesus was, in fact, Lord. He's the one who became the leader of the new church in Jerusalem after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and his appearances to hundreds of people. And James, in fact, gave his life for the gospel. And the very first part of the book, named after James, is his salutation to the people he's writing to. And he says, this is written by James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So clearly, he moved somewhere from putting Jesus in the lunatic category to putting Jesus in the Lord category. And the main thing that changed James' mind, I'm sure, was the same thing that changed a lot of the apostles' minds, and that was they saw the risen Lord. Years ago, I had a visit from a couple um, about our ages. When I say our, I mean my wife's and my ages. And they came in and said, could we visit with you for about an hour? We've got some questions. And I said, absolutely. They were people we knew from our community, And they were also, they had become recent in-laws to somebody that we had mentored, a young man. And they were concerned because this young man had become very fervent in his faith. He had had an unusual conversion experience. Uh, He had been married to somebody that had been into some very off-putting spiritual experiences, experiences. In fact, she was into Wiccan and in some dangerous areas that I would think spiritually. And so when our friend, the young man that we were mentoring, got saved, he got radically saved He started burning CDs of music that he used to listen to. Uh, He cut his hair differently. He started reading and memorizing lots of scripture. And he spoke with great passion about things related to his faith. And these in-laws were afraid that he had joined a cult. And they needed to speak to me because I happened to be the pastor of that cult. (laughs) And I think they were looking for some reassurance that we were not teaching really bizarre things. And I said, I'll tell you what we're teaching. We're teaching the Bible. I recommend it. It's a good book. And I asked them what their background was. And they had come from a mainline denominational background, so they knew quite a bit about that. And I said, you know what I really think is happening here? I think that he has come from such darkness into the light that he is really passionate. And he who has been forgiven much, loveth much. And I think that's what's happening. And. I think it's a good thing that he's fervent about that, and he's going to be tempered in some of his fervor if the fervor goes a little bit over the edge at times. But I would rather see somebody overly fervent about their faith than lukewarm, because the Bible tells us that God wants to spit out the people that are lukewarm. So he was fervent, and he really wanted to evangelize. He hung out a lot at a music store, and everybody that would come in that music store was going to get a good earful because he was going to talk to them about his conversion and about how they too can come to know Christ. He was an evangelist and he was just doing great things. So they went away after our time together feeling a little bit better about where he was and I think they have come to the conclusion that we were in fact not a cult. But there are modern families who get concerned about their kids, especially if they have come from a very different background and suddenly they're fervent Christians. They don't know what to do with that. I interviewed one guy for an article that I wrote years ago. He was at Dallas Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, and uh, he said some people really like ice cream, but they don't like it shoved in their face. And some of these young people that I'm trying to mentor will go home after a big conversion or after a call to the mission field, and they're trying to shove the ice cream in their parents' faces, and they're saying, but you need to, to buy into this because God has called me. And he said, so I'm trying to tell them, you need to be gentle with them and let them know how you were called and give some affirmation to that call rather than just pushing it on them that way. And I thought that was pretty wise. But he said there were people like grandparents who would say, you're going to take my grandchildren away from me. If you're going to follow God's call, and if he leads you to another state or to another foreign country... You're going to take my grandchildren so far away that I'll never be able to see them again. You wouldn't want to do that to your old parent, would you? And they start trying to elevate certain things that they think are really important rather than saying, you know, I recognize this is a call on your life and I'm going to support you in prayer in that, even though we're going to be heartbroken to see you gone for periods of time. But if God's calling you, we're there. I was extremely blessed because my mom and dad had prayed for both of their children that we would just follow Christ's leadership wherever that led. And so they understood that there would come a time, very possibly, when we might get led elsewhere. Who in the right mind would have thought we'd have come up to this cold weather? And yet here we are, after 35 years, Michiganians. And some will say, I think that it's a phase and it will pass. But what we have seen, that when people are truly called They can go the test of time. And what we have seen also is that a lot of those parents eventually warmed up and they were able to see the testimony lived out through their kids and said, you know, I'm glad that you followed the call that God put on your heart because you're doing the right thing. There were the teachers of the law. Let's move from the family to the teachers of the law. Aren't we glad that Jesus' family finally came around? What about the teachers of the law? Well, maybe not so much. They came down from Jerusalem. They were the ones who said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. And in this interchange between Jesus and the teachers of the law, we can see that the religious leaders simply could not bring themselves to admit that this is probably God's power being displayed through Jesus' miraculous uh, works. They just couldn't bring themselves to that. So they were projecting a twisted sort of... uh, attribution of power but they were attributing Satan's power for Jesus miracles to cast out Satan and Jesus was going to point that out through these arguments that he states Jesus calls them over he begins speaking to them in parables he starts by saying how can Satan drive out Satan I really wish that there would have been some young Galilean bystander maybe the young kid who had given Jesus his loaves and fish or something who had his cell phone handy And who would have taken a video of it and uploaded it to uh, Snapchat or, you know, Instagram or, you know, YouTube or, yeah. Some of that technical stuff that I have to ask my kids, what what in the world is this? I wish they would have put that out there on some social media. He would have tweeted it or something so that we could see the faces of the Pharisees and their reaction to Jesus' words. But we didn't have that back then. So we're left to our imaginations, but I can imagine, and I would love to know the tone, not only in Jesus' voice, but to see the look on Jesus' face as he was asking these questions and offering these things too, because I kind of sense a wry humor in Jesus. I, that Maybe I'm projecting myself onto Jesus. We tend to do that. But I, I hear, I think, a little bit of a facetiousness and a wry humor in the way he's asking some of that stuff. So I can't help but think that maybe he was slightly smiling And had just a little bit of a lilt in his voice as he was asking these questions. He had nothing to lose. He knew he was in the right. And so he might as well have just laid some things out there thinking, do you hear your own logic here? Or lack thereof? So that's why Jesus was dealing so seriously with them. But I think he did so in almost a playful manner. That's my take on it. So he calls them over. The statement, the first one that he gave was enough to silence them. You know, how can Satan cast out Satan? Because that's what they were saying, basically. And I think their faces might have been going, hmm, because they had to ponder that. And then he says in verse 24 and 25, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house, important word there, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And the word for house is important. It comes from oikos, Oikos. That's not a Greek yogurt, which, as I read one time, is not even from Greece, I think. It's probably made in New York City or something, but, oh, but that's not what we're talking about. Thank you for getting me back on track again. <laughs> my daughter knows about my ADHD tendencies. And so we're talking about oikos, which is the Greek word for household or family. Remember the Philippian jailer? And uh, the earthquake came. The doors were flung open. He's getting ready to commit Harry Carey with his sword because he was afraid he was going to have his life taken from him because he didn't guard the prisoners. And Christian speaks up and says, No, 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 we're all still here. And then they lead him to Christ. And it says he and his whole oikos, household, were baptized that day. This is that same word. And it was also used to describe the house of somebody. So if we were to say, What about James and John? Was, oh, they're from the house of Zebedee because that's the household. That was the last name given to that. Where were these guys from? They were from Jerusalem. What did they do? They protected the house of God, the temple. They were all about temple worship. So for Jesus to use this term I think is very pointed, and I think he was doing so on purpose because he's saying, if this household is divided... If a house is divided, it cannot stand. He starts with a kingdom. Of course, he's introducing the kingdom of God, whom he is establishing on earth, and eventually he's going to become the king of kings and rule it forever one day. But then he's talking about this thing, about this household that will be divided. That's precisely, precisely what these religious leaders were doing. And they had started to heap law after law on top of what the Old Testament law was all about, Rabbinic laws added until they became the Talmud and they had all these rabbinic things that you were supposed to do or not do, proving that you were really keeping the Sabbath well. Nobody could do it well. They were projecting their guilt on other people because they didn't see the hypocrisy in themselves. But they messed up in their logic when they accused Jesus of doing miracles, life-changing, restorative, redemptive miracles in the power of Satan. They messed up in that logic. He even points ahead, I think, with a hint into a future event that the teachers may or may not have grasped at the time because he's talking about that even Satan will be ended one day. His reign will end. He will be bound up. Let's look at verse 26. And if Satan opposes himself, is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Good prediction. And then he offers another parable to drive home his point. Verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. And we go, wait a minute, but who is the strong man here and who's doing the plundering? We have to go back to what he's just been doing. He's just been binding people up that have plundered into people's lives. He's been casting out demons, casting out Satan himself. So the strong man in Jesus' parable is Satan, Who's stronger than Satan? Who can tie him up? Nobody but God. God is the strong man who's going to tie up, or God is the one who's going to tie up the strong man and eventually plunder his house. See, Satan is the prince of this world. He's been given limited authority, and yet some people, (laughs) it's like a small person with a little authority, and they go overboard with that. I watched that happen with a guy who's checking luggage at the airport. He was, I think, bigger in his own mind than he really was. And he just loved having authority because he was barking orders at people and acting really official. And he had terrible public relations skills. (laughs) And I can't imagine that he would have lasted very long in that role. But Satan has been given limited authority. So, yes, he is the prince of darkness. Yes, he's got some limited authority over earth right now. But he's been treating it as though he owns the joint. You may have worked with people who kind of are like that. They've got limited authority, but they're acting as though they're the boss of the whole place. They're not the boss of the whole place. Satan is not the boss of this earth. God is, and God is eventually going to tie up that strong man And in a couple of different places in the Bible, in one place, they say he's going to tie him up or put him in chains and going to throw him down into this deep, dark, bottomless pit for a thousand years. And then there's another one that talks about eventually doing away with him once and for all time, and he's going to be cast into the lake of eternal fire. And so, however that happens, and whether that's metaphorical or real, it's going to happen. Satan's not going to be ruling any longer when Christ is ruling for all time. So I think Jesus was being kind of prophetic about that. And then Jesus is going to offer the final word on this subject because of their twisted logic, verses 28 and 29. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins. That's important. How many sins can be forgiven of any of us on the earth? All of those sins, including using counterfeit money to steal a pop. I'm so thankful for that. I mean, if you've ever cheated on a test, if you've ever fudged a little bit on a tax return, if you've ever used a sewing machine when you were supposed to be using your hand and you're going to beat that other person in the quilting bee contest. Whatever it is that you've done, God will forgive you for that. And he says so. He says so in in his scriptures. All of these things can be forgiven, and even every slander that they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And then verse 30, he said this because they... The teachers of the law were saying that he, Jesus, had an unclean spirit. So we need to grasp what he's saying here about this sin that's supposedly unforgivable, the unpardonable sin that some might call it. Let me get you to the bottom line, and I'm going to do some explanation from another scripture that's a great commentary on this scripture. It's the best commentary we can find is other scriptures. Bottom line first, the passage in Mark shows us that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means something about denying truth about Christ. They were denying the truth about Christ's identity and his purpose, and they were ascribing somebody else to his power. And so they were completely blinded to that. So that's important, because that's who he was saying this to. That's his audience there. The blasphemy that leads to death is the ultimate offense to God. So what exactly is that insult or offense? Let me give it to you in this one sentence. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is denying until the day you die the truth that Jesus is Lord. I'm going to read it again so you can write it down. Some of you are taking notes. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is denying until the day you die the truth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus knew what was in the heart of these Pharisees. He knew the disposition of their heart, and he knew that they had completely hardened their hearts against any evidence because even though the truth was literally, in this case, staring them in the face, they refused to accept that truth about who Jesus was. Even though they saw the miracles that would authenticate his authority and his power, and they still chose not to believe it and to go a step further, they chose to attribute Satan's power to his power. Let me point out this key verse. Uh, verses in 1 John 5. This is the parallel passage that I think gives us a clue. 1 John 5, and the context for that, by the way, is assurance of our salvation, which is important for us to know. That's a good place to point somebody if they say, I don't know if I'm really assured that I'm a Christian or not. Have them read 1 John 5. Starting at verse 10, 1 John 5, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. What is the testimony? God has given us eternal life, and this life is in whom? In his son. Whoever has the son has what? Life. If you've got Jesus, the son, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've got life, and he means eternal life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Can't get any clearer than that. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So then John, the apostle who had been with Jesus, who had seen these miracles, he had seen the resurrected Lord, he had solidified in his own mind that Jesus is, in fact, who he claimed to be, he wrote these words too. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's assurance. And that's what John was writing there. Then he gets into this idea of the unpardonable sin or the offense, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Every sin can be forgiven except one, which is that one sin denying Jesus. That's the sin. Who had committed that sin? The Pharisees. They continued to deny him. Now, not all Pharisees continued to deny him because we do know that there were a couple who came around, especially one who even petitioned Pilate for Jesus' body and went to the cross. So how have they committed the sin? How have the Pharisees committed it? They were so hard-hearted and unwilling to see and accept any evidence, including miraculous evidence, right before their eyes as to Jesus' identity, so that they attributed Satan's power to Jesus. They refused to give God the credit or the glory for these wonderful redemptive miracles which should have been given to God. He's the one who should have received the praise for that. In fact, in that very first miracle, when the guy let down through the roof in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it says, and all the people praised God. They gave God glory because they saw that, but these Pharisees refused to go there. Now, can you imagine, and you know a lot of Christians, can you imagine any true believer saying, you know, I see those miraculous works of Jesus, but I think that the devil is responsible for those. Can you even imagine a Christian saying that? No, a thousand times no, nor can I, which means that no loving Christian who loves the Lord would ever say that about him. I feel badly even mentioning that as an example I feel like I need to go wash my mouth out with soap. No, we would not say that about Jesus. That's blasphemous. It's such an offense to him. It's so demeaning. So I think that it's something that for us we need to get back to these four words as we start trying to figure out what category do we put this in and how do we think about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I'll tie it up. I'm going to wrap these two things together. Let's look back at our four words. We've already crossed out the word legend because we know that his family came around, including James, who is the best example for us, James, who became the leader of the church of Jerusalem. We know that Jesus was a real historic character. We can also, or that's the the historic part, the family, we can cross out lunatic, and cross that one right out, boom, because the family came around. That's the one that I was mentioning because of James. But now that only leaves liar or lord. And which category do you think the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, would be placing him in? Well, that's making out Jesus to be a liar. Because if Jesus is claiming all the things that he's claiming in his earthly ministry, then they're saying, no, you're not. You're a liar. You're from Satan. You're uh, possessed by Beelzebub or Beelzebul. When people see the truth right in front of their eyes, and yet they call it a lie, that's not the work of God. That's the work of the devil, who's the author of lies. And these guys clearly were so completely twisted that black was white, white was black, up was down, down was up. Jesus was actually being possessed by the devil when, in fact, Jesus was God incarnate casting out the devil. So when somebody can get so far off track from truth, especially truth related to Christ, and say with a straight face that the lie is true, then there's nothing left to do for them except they're condemning themselves and they have given a great offense to God. No real Christian would ever think of doing such a thing. That's why 1 John is there for us. And if we continue to read through, especially chapter 5 of 1 John, it's so reassuring to those of us as believers. We know that we know that we know because we are connected to the vine, we are those branches. It's from John, it's not from 1 John. But if anybody has ever wondered, and I spoke with a lady years ago who asked this question. She said, when my relative died, I was so distraught that I cursed God. And I'm so afraid that the things that I said that were so ugly were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I'm so afraid that I've just given that unpardonable sin. And she said, I'm so concerned about it. I can't even sleep at night because of it. And I said, you know what you've just said confirms for me that you have not. Because those who are committing that sin don't see that they are wrong about that. They actually think that they're doing God a favor by calling a lie the truth. They're completely upended in that. For her to have that soft part in her heart, that softening of her heart and the, the repentant attitude means that the Holy Spirit was still at work in her heart. If you fear you have, you haven't. And so if anybody comes to me and says, Pastor, I, just, I feel so badly because I've committed this really horrible sin, and I'm so afraid God's not going to forgive me. I would take him right back to this Mark chapter 3 because he says all these sins and offenses will be forgiven you except the offense of the Holy Spirit. And the offense of the Holy Spirit can be rectified as long as we have a breath. I had one professor, Dr. Martin, Joy and I both had the same professor of theology back in college. And he used to say as long as you have one breath left in your body, if you have that sense that you have committed something and you calling out with the last breath that you've got and say, God, please forgive me. He's there for you. He will forgive you. That's why in my definition I included until you die. Because as long as somebody has a breath left, there's still a chance that they can come around and ask for forgiveness. The thief on the cross is our best example for that. He didn't even say it in the right way. He didn't walk an aisle. He didn't fill out a contact card. He didn't go into the corner with a counselor prayer. He didn't do any of those things that so many people have made us think we have to do in order to reach out to God. He just said, I want to be with you in your kingdom when you get there. He was recognizing Jesus' authority, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So have I ever, if you've ever worried about that, you can put that worry to rest. If you think you have, you haven't. Those who commit this sin unto death never want to turn back, and I can't help but wonder if Jesus just knew what was exactly in the heart of these Pharisees and knew that they were not going to turn back. Most of the Pharisees, as I mentioned, not all of them did, but most of the Pharisees continued. What did they want to do with this truth that was standing before them? They wanted to kill that truth. And so they literally killed the exemplification of that truth. They killed Jesus Christ or had him killed. While Jesus was alive on earth, the Pharisees stood face to face with truth and refused to accept it. So there's only one choice left, in my opinion, of these four words. The God who called us will keep us. He assures us of that. It's Jesus, the Lord of our lives. Jesus is Lord. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He's not a legend. He is Lord. And my life verse, the one that I continue to go to, again and again is so reassuring. It gives us such, such confidence. Philippians 1.6. This is the New Living Translation. He, meaning God, who began that good work in you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. And that, for the believer, is going to be a yes day. For the unbeliever, it's going to be uh uh-oh. Which means that this passage, this Mark chapter 3 passage, is both a word of encouragement and a word of warning. All in the same passage. It's a word of encouragement to believers. Keep abiding in Christ. You keep doing what God's called you to do because he's the one who started the work in you and he will be faithful to complete it. But for those who are still in the unbeliever category, if you haven't been able to move Jesus into the Lord category from those four words, it's a warning. Don't delay. Quit denying the truth. Please, open your eyes to the truth. God pursues us, and he has been pursuing you. And he's still doing that. He's pursuing unbelievers, showing them again and again and again. And there's so many opportunities for them to see truth. But the longer they deny it, the easier it gets to continue to deny it, and they become hardened. It becomes that seared conscience, the seared heart. And we don't want that to happen. We want those people who are in the unbeliever category to get moved right over there, just like Saul on the road to Damascus, and to be able to say, Lord, why was I persecuting you all this time? I see the truth now. I see that you are who you say you are. You're the Lord of my life. You died for me on the cross, and no other name on earth is their salvation. There's no other name by which I can be saved, and so I trust you. I want you to be the Lord. That's what we're praying for. And if by chance you're listening to this, And you're getting that tug in your heart. That's the Holy Spirit. Don't shut him out. Don't harden your heart. Open yourself up and say, God, I need you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's incredible to me to see how patient and persistent you are in reaching every single person. And I do pray that your Holy Spirit will soften the hearts, hearts that have become like stone, and that you'll soften them right up. And that people who have previously shut you out and been unwilling to consider all the evidence that you have been putting out before them, that they would open themselves up to you, and that they would become pliable as clay in the hands of the master potter, and that you would shape their lives and give them purpose and meaning and love for you and others and life eternal, that you'll resurrect them from death to life. And I pray that you'll do that in so many people because we want there to be a great reunion one day when you do return so that we can celebrate together. I pray that that'll happen. And I pray it in the powerful name of Jesus, knowing that he is God. Amen.